I was right out of my head the way he described it. He said I'd be better dead than live. I didn't listen to his jive. I knew all along he was all wrong. Deconstructing Harry is the 27th film written and directed by Woody Allen, first released in 1997. Woody Allen stars as Harry Block, a cantankerous writer who was accused by the people in his life of using them in his work. Those in his life, many of them women, are also portrayed as their fiction selves. Together, they form one of the biggest casts Alan has ever assembled. When Harry is honoured at his old school, he goes on a strange journey with his kidnapped son and a prostitute. This is one of Alan's harshest films. There's prostitution, kidnapping, infidelity, nudity and more explicitness. There's even the casual use of the C word. But that harsh surface obscures some pretty astute comedy deft directing, and a pretty fantastic film. Welcome to the Woody Allen Pages podcast. This week, episode 21, we look at 1997's Deconstructing Harry, how it was conceived, how it was made, and how it's really quite rude. Spoilers are everywhere, so watch the film and then come back. I like it. I like it. A character who's too neurotic to function in life can only function in art. In the late 90s, Alan was still coming off the reputational damage he suffered in the early 90s. He was legally cleared of all charges, of course, but stupid people who had never seen a Woody Allen film were still lapping up the tabloid drama. Well, if you want to hate Woody Allen, Alan created a film where he seemed to play up to that. The film that became Deconstructing Harry saw Alan being uncharacteristically angry. There's swearing and sex and violence. He seemed to say, here, I'm the monster you imagine. Anger isn't really an emotion that Alan has tapped into in his work. He's usually coldly cynical. But an element of it creeps into his work in the 90s. There's anger in husbands and wives. There's anger in celebrity. And then here in Deconstructing Harry. In his many dozens of films, this is Alan at his angriest. What's he angry about? Well, it seems it's people, authority, God, and the same old Woody Allen concerns. There's no one easy target. It's just the usual targets with the heat turned up. Floor five, subway muggers, aggressive panhandlers, and book critics. Floor six, right-wing extremists, serial killers, lawyers who appear on television. Floor seven, the media. Sorry, that floor is all filled up. Floor 8, escaped war criminals, TV evangelists, and the NRA. Lowest level, everybody off. The person turning up the heat is the character of Harry Block. The film lives and dies on his shoulders. He is in almost every scene. Before the plot, before the short stories, before the casting, I imagine Alan started with just the idea of this grumpy Harry Block character. As Alan puts it, is a neurotic character that is unable to live a good life. Harry is a writer, and of course, there's writers all through Woody Allen's body of work. But Harry is not like other writers in other Allen films. Writers in Allen films are usually intellectual New Yorkers in the middle class or higher. Look at the authors and publishers in Allen's next film, Celebrity, for example, who have dinner parties for book launches. Instead here, Harry is a pig. He swears, he drinks, he sleeps with whores, and he's a slob. You know, you know, I, 
I just have not grown up, and I feel, you know, it's not, um, you know, I, I, I see other guys my age. I mean, I'm always thinking of fucking every woman I meet. I meet a woman, whoever, on the bank, a stranger. I see a woman on the bus. I think, what would she look like naked? Is it possible I can fuck her? And, you know, this is crazy. I, 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 I see guys I, I know that are lawyers and doctors. They have families and houses. They, they, they're not so, you know, I mean, you know, does the president of the United States want to fuck every woman he may? You know, so... Bad example, you know, but... but um... The character of Harry sets the tone for the film, and the tone for this film is what stands out. Someone pulling out a gun or a tussle on the street as a child is kidnapped. It all fits in here because Harry is that kind of character. He's chaotic, and we see the world through his eyes, and all he does is create more chaos. You stop right there! No, don't shoot. Don't pull the trigger. Look, look, if it makes you happy, I, my life has been going very badly. I've been miserable. My girl left me. She went off with a close friend of mine. Everything's been insomnia. I've got herpes. I've squandered everything I have on, on shrinks and lawyers and whores. Fatigue syndrome. It's actually a little rare for Alan to write a complex male lead. When Alan writes male leads, they are usually in the centre of an ensemble, with the supporting cast stealing the limelight. Think Bullets Over Broadway, or A Midsummer Night's Sex Comedy, or many others. It's exacerbated by the fact that Alan, for many years, wrote for himself to star, meaning he was often not the strongest actor in the film. He is, of course, known for writing female roles that have complexity in screen time. Harry is the male exception. He's a male character that we really dive into. He's got colour and contradictions. He goes on a journey and learns lessons, kind of, but we'll get back to that. The supporting cast around him mainly serves his character. This is the Harry Block show. And despite his surface awfulness, we like Harry. He's the one-eyed man in the land of the blind. That is, Alan writes him to be smarter than everyone else. He gets the best lines, he gets the last word. We also like him because it's the fantasy of film. We all wish we could be that crude and dramatic. He says things we only wish we could say. And he says them with pithy, quotable lines. This isn't reality, but it's fun. Alan makes Harry the only character in the film that we care about. I don't think you're paranoid. I think you're the opposite of a paranoid. I think you go around with the insane delusion that people like you. The plot is very simple. At the heart of it is Harry, a writer who is going through issues with his friends and family. He is also set to be given an award and travels to a prestigious university to accept it. If the last part of the plot sounds familiar, it's because it's a trope that Alan has used many times. And yes, maybe too many times. It originates from Igmar Bergman's Wild Strawberries, a 1957 film that Alan loves. In it, an elderly professor returns to his school to accept an award. Alan used a premise in Another Woman in 1988 and played around with it again in 2022's Rifkin's Festival. I can be generous and compare it to other cliches, like the cop with the one last case. It's a frame, something to hang the story on. You couldn't get two more different films than Another Woman and Rifkin's Festival. Alan uses it as a blank page and does something completely different. But it is the same old blank page, if such a thing can exist. It's not great that Alan repeats himself, but it's also just a very small part of what makes up the film. The sad thing is, I gotta drive all the way upstate to be honored, and I have to go by myself. You know, I got nobody to go with. It's, you know, I, I, you know, okay, so, and, and I, I, you know, I. The journey provides momentum to the story. It's a road trip film with a prize at the end. 
It also allows Harry the opportunity to bump into things that set off flashbacks and asides, which is the other big hook of the film. Throughout the film, we see Harry's writings come to life. Those stories make up a bulk of the film. They read like Woody Allen short stories, where there's usually a big idea played out. I imagine Allen repurposed existing short stories or ideas he already had into the film. 20 minutes in, and we have already seen three of these stories. The opening scene at the family lunch, Toby Maguire's mix-up with the Grim Reaper, and Robin Williams as the out-of-focus man. Pretty quickly, Alan sets up an expectation of what this film is about and how the film works. It's Harry's life and Harry's stories going back and forth. The short stories feel like they've concluded too. That the characters we meet have met their end and it's over and we move on. Is there something wrong? Mel, come here. What? You're, I don't know how to tell you this, but um, you're soft. I'm getting a little weight. No, no, it's, it's not that. You're, you're soft. You're, you're, you're out of focus. I don't know why. Is there anything we can do? Just look at yourself. What is wonderful and very Woody Allen is when he breaks the rules of his own film. It's a trick he's done over and over, but for me, it never gets old. Just as we settle into the film and we think we know what the film is about, Allen pulls out the chair, because soon we see Harry's actual life cut into his stories. Harry's life and his stories are not cleanly separated. Halfway through the film, his fictional characters actually start to talk back. When Harry and his motley crew end up at the highway amusement park, Harry finds himself talking to some characters we only know so far as fiction. Alan breaks the rule of the film, and it offers an interesting way for Alan to do some exposition. Who are you? It's me, Ken. Ken? <laughs> Look at this guy. You created me, now you don't recognize me? Then there's the scenes with Faye in the elevator, played by Elizabeth Shue, which cut back and forth with the fiction events portrayed in one of Harry's books, and her character is played by Jennifer Garner. It's doubly interesting as Harry in his head is now admitting to how much he takes from people and events around him, something he denied earlier in the film. But, but, but this, is, this, is, this is not a book, you know what I mean? We, this, we're, we're not characters in, in a fictional thing, I mean this is... So don't, don't fall in love with me. Promise, promise you won't fall in love with me. What's more, his creations are also able to show Harry scenes he's never been to, like a scene with Lucy, played by Judy Davis, who discovers Harry is leaving his wife, but not for her. The fictional creations he talks to are more than just his memories. They actually have new information. I'm going to be totally frank with you, and... Just try and hang what can on I and say understand. I'm being replaced. Yes, yes, but it doesn't have to be a nightmare. If we're all just mature replaced about Replaced no. by a 25-year-old. Excuse me? The biggest escalation is when Harry goes out of focus himself, echoing that short story from earlier. How is this even possible? It isn't how the world works. Still, Harry and Cookie, who is with him, don't take it as this world-breaking event. And we as the audience knows it's a callback to the out-of-focus man from earlier. It's a wonderful piece of writing as the audience quickly puts everything together whilst caught in the wonder of the trick. Rightly so, Alan sticks it right in the climax of the film. It's also the climax of Harry's internal journey that he externalises. Cookie, look at me. Look, look, I'm out of focus. Well, you look okay to me. I mean, you're a little pale, but you're all right. 
I'm out of focus. I'm soft. You better Look. calm down. They're gonna be here any minute. Shh, come no, on, no, on. They, they, it's so humiliating. They're gonna honor me, and I'm a blob. You look fine. You look no. fine. The film ends with everyone together. Harry is surrounded by professors and his fictional creations. Again, the rules of the film have been shattered. How can they all be here? But also, our audience expectations have been shattered. Who would suspect that we would see Tobey Maguire or Robin Williams again? The professors tell him it's a dream, so maybe Harry has been dreaming for other parts of the film as well. That would explain the scene where Harry meets the devil or sees his dead friend, Richard, when in prison. Jesus, I see, I'm no good at life. I'm, no, you know, no, but you write well. I write well, but that's a different story because, you know, I can manipulate the characters yeah, right. You create your plots. own universe, you do that, but that's, you know, much nicer than the world we have. But by then, all the rules of how this world works is out the window. What's interesting in these final moments is what Harry has learnt. Alan has often said that life and happiness is what you make it. That wonderful scene at the end of his 1979 film Manhattan has Alan talking about crab dishes and paintings as reasons that make life worth living. Here, he does something similar. He thanks his fictional creations for giving him that hard-to-find happiness. I love all of you, really. You, you've given me some of the happiest moments of my life, and, and, and you've even saved my life at times, you know? And now, now you've, you've actually taught me things, you know? And I'm completely grateful I for this, I think the author's really. message is to know yourself, stop kidding yourself, accept your limitations, and get on with your life. I find Alan's sentiment here fascinating. I don't think of Alan as someone who loves his work or his characters. He's often critical of his own films, and he moves on so quickly from story to story. I don't imagine he looks back at characters he created too often. When asked in interviews about what he thinks happened to Alvie or Annie or Hannah and those sisters of hers, Alan is dismissive. They have no life outside of what is on the page. On the other hand, Alan is a writer, and he throws himself into these stories. He makes a film a year, but some of those take decades to write. Harry goes so far as to say his fictional characters have saved his life. Has writing Marion in Another Woman saved Alan's life? I don't know. I'd lately, for the first time in my life, I, I experienced writer's block. And this, to me, is unheard of. I, I... And then there's the writer's block. Alan claimed for many decades he has never had writer's block. But there is a message in this film about accepting that your art gives people pleasure and that there's value there. Is that what Alan feels? Or is it just Harry? I really don't know, and as much as I've studied Alan, I hazard to guess. I'm not sure if this is Harry speaking or Alan. Maybe it's just Harry's journey, separate from Alan. The fact that I don't know comes back to the heart of this film. What is fiction? What is reality? And another important question about this film is, how much Woody Allen is in Harry Block? All the details. You gave me away to my sister. Marvin's left me. He's gone. Hey, I was loosely based on us. <laughs> Don't bullshit me, motherfucker! On the surface, there's lots of similarities. Harry's a New Yorker. Harry is a writer. He's very Jewish. He's had multiple wives. He has a sister. And let's not forget, Alan has had his share of people complain that he took their lives and put it on film. Of course, Harry Block looks exactly like Woody Allen, which only confuses the issue. Well, what's, what's the man like? Uh, it's me thinly disguised. In fact, I, I don't even think I should disguise it anymore. It's, you know, it's, it's me. Uh -huh. This is also five years on 
from Husbands and Wives, a film about his bitter breakup with Mia Farrow, just as he was going through a bitter breakup with Mia Farrow. And perhaps Alan was mining similar ground. People believe he's an immoral monster. Why not write a film about one? But there's other theories. There are other novelists who are genuinely that grumpy. The most common reading is that Harry is based on Philip Roth, the acclaimed Jewish novelist. He was often accused of mining his own life for his works, and he was crude and wrote a lot about carnal passions and Jewishness. Philip Roth definitely suits the character of Harry more than Alan, but Alan has never said anything definitive on the matter, despite a lot of speculation. Maybe a single point of reference is beside the point. Because Alan loves writers like Ernest Hemingway, who was also a similarly hard-drinking, hard-writing, hard-truthing kind of author. Saul Bellow sounds like a cantankerous prick. Or J.D. Salinger, who was an incredible writer, but a basket case in private. So rather than being about anyone specific, I think Alan is playing around with the idea of a type of writer. Certainly, Alan didn't know Roth well enough to paint an accurate portrait. Like Harry, Alan just took some ideas in someone's life and made up the rest. I'm a shit. Well, talk to me about something. I, I'm, you like sports? Sports, yeah. I was, I was a pitcher. I, I, when, when, when a guy crowded the plate, I used to throw at his head. Because I'm the worst person in the world. Honey, That's the I problem. See, I've seen worse. Who? Who's worse than me? Hitler. All right, maybe Hitler. Maybe Hitler, Goering, and Goebbels, but I'm right fourth. Right Come on, hold my hand. The thing that Alan really wanted to play around with was the idea of someone who was better at art than life. And a lot of the humour comes from how bad Harry is at basic life. He doesn't know when to shut his mouth. He can't read social cues. He just says what's on his mind and wonders why people hate him. You have no values your whole life. It's nihilism, it's cynicism, it's sarcasm and orgasm. Yeah, you know, in France, I could run on that slogan and win. It's the women in his life that are the most trouble. His ex-wife hates him. The sister of his ex-wife, with whom he had an affair, hates him and tries to kill him. His sister hates him, and the closest thing he has to a love interest is Faye, who is marrying someone else. The most functional relationship we see between Harry and a woman is with Cookie, the prostitute. You know the that the universe is coming apart. Do you know about that? You know, what, you know what a black hole is? Yeah, that's how I make my living. Beneath it all, Harry has lots of unresolved issues. He rallies against the religion he was raised in. He hates his father and depicts him as a murdering cannibal and a slave in hell. It feels like maybe there was more backstory to Harry that was cut. Those threads about how Harry came to be Harry are never really resolved. Same with the small subplot about Harry's editor, who is mentioned a couple of times, but it never plays out. Alan in the 90s was overwriting and slimming down the story in the edit, and he was full of ideas, and there's just no way that what we see on screen was all that he wrote. I'm a Jew. I was born a Jew. What, do you hate me because of that? What, and, and if our parents converted uh, to Catholicism uh, a month before you were born, we'd be Catholics, and that would be the end of it. They're, uh, they're clubs. They're exclusionary, all of them. They, they, you know, they, they foster the concept of the other, you know, so you know clearly who you should hate. And... Would you... Or maybe Alan didn't want to resolve them. I'm not sure what Harry learns in the end anyway. He accepts Faye is marrying Larry, and in hell, he says he still loves his dad despite it all. But I certainly don't think he learns to love better or to treat people in his life better. The only thing that Harry seems to learn is that he functions much better in art than life and that he is his best self when he is writing. I guess that's even if he is a prick sometimes. His life, at the end of the film, remains a hot mess. 
God. I don't know what to say. I love you. This guy, I've loved. F uh, I give up. I give up. Right, come on. I but to really understand Harry, as the film suggests, we have to understand his works. And his works are pretty good. The Out of Focus Man, played by Robin Williams, is one of Alan's most memorable characters. It's typical of Alan to take a big idea, like a man being out of focus, and play it for laughs, but then swerve it back to some deeper meaning, like the way that the character forces the world to conform to who he is. It's a wonderful little story on its own, and Alan plays it off beautifully in Harry's life. So, despite the fact that children don't want to wear glasses, they're forced to. You expect the world to adjust to the distortion you've become. I love the story of Dolly Pincus, the old Jewish woman who finds out that her husband was a killer and a cannibal, but is completely laid back about it. It's a completely different tone from the rest of the short stories, and it keeps us guessing about where it's going. He killed his wife. No. The man purchased an axe. With an axe? And you know, Max, he's nothing with tools. He, he can't even hang a picture. I'm dropping dead. One of the stories was actually a rewrite of a scene Alan shot, but ultimately left out of Annie Hall. It's the scene where Harry goes down the elevator to meet the devil. And Alan actually filmed a version with himself, Diane Keaton, and Tony Roberts doing the descent with different elevator gags. I would love to see the original scene, but I'm afraid Alan keeps deleted scenes locked up tight. Photos of the Annie Hall scene exist, though. What did you do? I invented aluminum siding. In terms of world building, this is an intense blast of Woody Allenisms. They're psychologists, writers, directors, New York, Jewishness, jazz. All the tropes are here. In that sense, this is a really good Woody Allen starter film. It harkens back to his 70s work a little, where he had so many ideas that his films were overflowing. Even the comedy is varied. There's out-and-out -out visual fast in The Devil Visit. There's the funny scene with Lucy, played by Judy Davies, when she hears that Harry is leaving his wife, but not for her. There is, of course, plenty of troll one-liners. And minute for minute, there's probably more quotable lines in this film than his other films in the 90s. Is this your work you ever get you down? Or... It's okay, beats the hell out of waitressing. You know, it's funny. Every hooker I ever speak to tells me that it beats the hell out of waitressing. Waitressing's got to be the worst fucking job in the world. It's unbelievable. Alan also threads in his philosophy into every page. There's little snipes at the NRA, organized religion, and the same old deserving targets. Like the cast and the story itself, there's just a lot of film here. Not only do I know that we lost six million, but the scary thing is that records are made to be broken, you know? I mean so in a way, Alan is playing through some of his greatest hits, but it's more like a medley, just blasting through them. The overall result is a lot of fun coming with you at high speed, but sometimes, like Harry himself, it feels a little out of control. You ruined my life! I've come in and blown my brains out! What's wrong with you? In front of you! In front of you on your carpet! You... Because you caused it! My fucking brain's on your You're carpet! You're so fucking unstable! Will you but relax? that's why you, you picked me, isn't it? That's what turns you on about me, Jane's crazy sister! Oh, calm down, you're not gonna kill yourself. Deconstructing Harry was filmed in New York and joins a run of 90s films where Alan shot in contemporary times. On the surface, everything went smoothly. 
Alan had a deal with Sweetland Films and he was able to just go from one film to the next and never stop. Cinematographer Carlos De Palma continues to make his mark on Alan's work. Ever since 1992's Husbands and Wives, De Palma and Alan have been making punk rock cinema with lots of moving cameras and erratic editing. Although they toned it back in some films of Alan's intervening works, it's back here with a vengeance. It's all there in just the opening scene as Lucy arrives in a taxi to Harry's apartment and the scene is cut and replayed and cut again. Even odder is that Alan has cut into his usual opening credit sequence. He usually lets the entire credit scene play before the film even starts. Here, he's cut into it. It all sets up that this is going to be an erratic ride. De Palma and Alan really indulge in their tendencies here. As well as the editing and the camera work, there's plenty of long shots. There's plenty of chasing characters around, beautiful angles be damned. There's moments when actors are completely out of shot, blocked by a pillar or can't be seen. It doesn't matter. It's not what's important in this film. It's tradition. Tradition is the illusion of permanence. It doesn't just happen in kinetic shots of people running around or kidnapping people. It happens in a scene where Harry is talking to his shrink, just sitting in an office. Or the scenes at the amusement park. Just the odd harsh cut that deliberately takes you out of the story. The other thing about the cinematography for me is the colour of this film. For whatever reason, Alan has a palette that he loves. And he loves warm colours. Reds, yellows and browns. And if you ever want to explicitly notice it, you just have to look at this film. Almost everyone wears greys and browns. Look at the professors from the university, for example. That is the Woody Allen colour scheme. This would be De Palma's last film with Alan. He wasn't well and returned to Italy after this. There would be times when Alan and De Palma would try to work together again, but it would never happen. At 12 films, he's the cinematographer who's worked with Alan the most, and I doubt anyone is ever going to break that record. He died in 2004. In fitting with the sprawling story, there's also a lot of locations. There are huge set pieces like the scene in Hell and people being tortured, which was actually filmed in a disused armory in New Jersey. Adair University is actually Drew University, which is actually the same university from A Rainy Day in New York. And then there's just people walking and talking on New York streets, and there's plenty of New York to admire. The Bethesda Fountain in Central Park is the opening scene of the Out of Focus Man story. Yes, it would be used again by Alan several more times, and it looks gorgeous every time. And then there's a couple of great New York apartments. Harry's in particular seems impossibly cool. This film is almost 30 years old. The streets and the shops look completely different now. That old amusement park on Route 17 is long gone. There's always this extra layer of seeing Alan films. It's seeing New York as it once was. You know, but it's not, you know, I, I, I woke up one morning and I looked at you over breakfast and I thought to myself, God, this is what they mean. This is what they're talking about. Let's look at that incredible cast. It fits with the story to have so many characters, but it's amazing the star power that Alan was able to draw upon. At this point, Alan could get just about anyone. Half of the cast regularly headline their own Hollywood blockbusters. The big gets for this film are Robin Williams and Billy Crystal. Both were superstars in the 90s. Alan doesn't work with big name male comics often. He doesn't write roles for them. Usually these male actors want to be on screen all the time, so they turn down doing small roles for Alan. But every American comedian loves Woody Allen. 
and Crystal and Williams were willing to take minor roles. Williams' role as the out-of-focus man is doubly hilarious because he's such a superstar and we don't get to see his face. It adds this extra irony to the casting. Otherwise, lots of people could have played this role. The fact that he's so recognisable, even out of focus, is what makes it work. You hear that voice, and you see that shape, and you get that it's one of the most successful actors in the 80s and 90s. It's worth noting that that out of focus element was all special effects done after the shooting by Industrial Light and Magic. It couldn't be done practically. Hey, what's the matter? You look strange. I'm out of focus. Yeah. Yeah, you are. Just just a little bit. You are, mm-hmm. and, and, and you look pale. Daddy, you're all blurry. Yeah. Yeah, maybe maybe you should go lay Daddy, down. I'll Daddy bring you some focus. tea and toast in bed. Daddy doesn't need that, okay? Yes, come on, now you be nice. I like what Alan has done with Billy Crystal, because I love Billy Crystal. His character, Larry, is charming, smart, and doesn't feel any threat from Harry. And so Crystal is fantastic playing the straight man to Alan. If the devil was truly Billy Crystal, you'd be charmed by him too. <laughs> Would you like a drink? Terrible. Uh, could, I, could I get some tequila? Sure, sure. Great tequila. Why don't you sit down? Make yourself at home. You want me to turn on the air conditioner? Your air conditioner here? Sure, it fucks up the ozone layer. Williams, Crystal and Alan all shared a manager in Charles Joffe. So it's amazing that they hadn't worked together before, but also all three were so successful that they never needed to team up. It's a real shame the three don't get a scene together, but just seeing Alan and Crystal together is pretty good. Also a huge star at the time was Julia Louise Dreyfus. She was pregnant at the time and still doing Seinfeld and was one of the richest stars on TV. She didn't need to work or do anything, yet she made the time to shoot a couple of scenes for Alan. She had a small role in Hannah and Her Sisters years before she was Seinfeld famous. So this is actually her second time in an Allen film. Ken. No. Oh, no. No, no. it's okay. You can't scare me like that, uh-huh. okay? I grind my teeth. Just don't scare me like that. It was nothing. Just a false alarm. Right, Listen, right. Uh, try not to actually chew. Oh, God, you know... There's a few other people who really didn't need the paycheck but worked with Allen anyway. Kirsty Alley was still remembered for her time in Cheers and was also far too rich to have to take a role at scale. Hey, I'm as much a victim as you. You, you know, you think that getting a blowjob from a, a big bosom 26-year-old is a pleasurable thing for me? <laughs> oh, you're making me sick. I can't believe this is happening. And Julie Kavner, who had worked with Alan many times, works with Alan one last time here. But by now, she was more than super famous with The Simpsons. There's some actors here that were just about to be mega famous. Toby Maguire is here in an early role. Jennifer Garner has a quick appearance. Paul Giamatti plays one of the professors. This is all the work of Alan's casting director, Juliet Taylor, who seemed to always be able to find tomorrow's stars. Hazel Goodman deserves a shout out as Cookie. I think one of the toughest acting jobs is actually acting against Woody Allen, and she spends more time with him than anyone. Alan's rhythm and style is so particular, and you can't exactly learn it elsewhere. Plus, you don't get to rehearse. And let's face it, Alan is the boss, so if you screw up, you are doing it in front of the boss, who's more than happy to fire people. There are horror stories of actors who worked with Alan who couldn't get it right, and Alan fired them shortly after. So Goodman is so great. She barrels into her scenes. She has all the confidence, she throws herself into the roles, and she hits her lines. She's both tough and caring, and she's one of the more likeable characters in the film. 
Occasionally, people attack Alan for not casting more people of colour. Sure, it's true. Alan is a filmmaker of a very specific ethnicity. So I would say the same for Jackie Chan films or Spike Lee's lack of Asian characters. But he does more than most people think, and Hazel is a good one. He hired her again in a short film in 2001 called Sounds from a Town I Love, and no one else gave her a starring poster billing role again, despite her obvious considerable talent. I'm going to get over this. Come on. I'm having a panic attack. I have these attacks. What sports do you like? I don't know. I I like them all. I like baseball. I like basketball. I I was married to a woman cookie who, she looked like Max Schmeling. No, I'm not joking. She was, she was. Uh Uh-oh. All right, it's time. Cookie, I would not, I can't get through this without you. I mean that. Don't worry about it. Don't worry. If you didn't come with me today. Don't worry about it. Come on. Straighten up. And then there are so many stars here, and some of them only get to do one thing. You barely get to see Demi Moore do anything, or Elizabeth Shue do anything. Stanley Tucci, in particular, is kind of wasted. But everyone has limited screen time. The wonderful Bob Balaban is here, and has a one-note role. Although, like Hazel Goodman, he's pretty good at holding his own against Alan. Otherwise, he kind of plays the Woody Allen standard friend, but it's nice to see him on screen. What's the matter? I'm on my way to the doctor's. I'm having severe pains in my chest. That's, that's nothing. That's, that's indigestion or gallbladder or ulcer, acid No, reflux. except I got a family history. My father died prematurely of a heart attack. My mother dropped dead of a massive coronary. And, and both my brothers were dead before they were 50 from heart failure. I don't know why you're wasting time talking to me. You should get an ambulance. Are you busy? And then there's returning players. Carolyn Aaron is great as usual as Alan's sister. She actually played Alan's sister before in 1989's Crimes and Misdemeanors, as well as minor roles in Alice and Husbands and Wives. And then there's Judy Davis, who steals the show. Nothing beats her performance for Alan in Husbands and Wives, but she uses her talent for comedy here. She's got that Brando energy. She can just erupt, and she can be hilarious about it. The only negative I can say about her flawless performance is that there's not enough of it. It says a lot that one of the very few scenes not to feature Harry is one where the camera focuses completely on Judy. Oh, big fucking deal. You gave her Lawrence Leslie, please. Lucy. I'm Lucy, motherfucker. Not Leslie. Also returning is Mariel Hemingway, who appeared almost 20 years earlier in Manhattan. She was looking for work, and Alan, who had remained good friends with her, was happy to write her apart. It's also nice to see Tony Sirico again, this time as a cop, a couple of years before he starred in The Sopranos and really broke through. Kidnapping, prostituting your car in possession of marijuana, possession of an unlicensed firearm. <laughs> I told you already about the firearm. There was a crazy woman on my roof shooting at me. I got the gun away from her. I put it in my car. I was going to hand it in. I got to make another phone call. You made your call. Yeah, I know, but that didn't count. That was that was to my girlfriend's answering service. I'm, I'm trying to keep her from getting married. You also to... called your sister. Yeah, my, my sister wasn't in, so, you know, You I... called your lawyer. Hey, my lawyer was at Canyon Ranch. I can never get my lawyer. He's can never... Can I give you some advice? You're in deep shit. And then there's Harry. Alan took the part because no one else wanted it. He offered it to many people. The list includes Albert Brooks, Robert De Niro, Elliot Gould, Dustin Hoffman, Dennis Hopper, and Jack Nicholson. Every five or ten years or so, some other legendary male actor reveals that he was also offered the role. So I'm sure there was more. 
and some of that casting would have made so much sense. Richard Dreyfus would have been my random pick because he's very good at playing a pretentious prick, but those actors usually get paid more than Alan pays, so they all turned it down. Still, Alan does fine in the role, especially when he gives some of those one-liners that are clearly his own view on life. It's good to hear him say it. He's great in that opening scene with Judy Davis. He steps up and his timing and his comedy instincts kick in. But that never off-screen charisma of someone like Jack Nicholson would have been fascinating as Harry. Instead, Nicholson played a grumpy prick and won the Academy Award for Best Actor for it in As Good As It Gets in exactly the same year as Deconstructing Harry. Alan would play the lead in a few more light comedies in the 2000s and then step back into the occasional co-starring role. He would never quite put himself in the position to carry a film with his acting ever again. So this is Alan's last great starring role. So when you got back two days ago. Two days ago, We yeah. go back a long way. Long time. We, we, we were friends. Yeah, we both okay. started out to be Kafka, wanting to be Kafka, and mm-hmm. he, yeah. you got slightly closer than yeah, I did. Yeah, I became the insect. <laughs> this was Woody Allen's first film without producer Robert Greenhut for over 20 years. Greenhut is a legend and made Alan's unique schedule of a film a year work. Greenhut left because Alan's studio, Sweetland Films, were trying to keep Alan's costs down. In this period, he would lose a lot of people who had worked with him for up to two decades. But for this Alan film, he still had a few of his regulars, including editor Susan E. Morse, production designer Santo Laquasto, costume designer Susie Benzinger, and casting director Julia Taylor. But taking over as producer was Richard Brick. The wonderfully named Richard Brick was a former commissioner of the New York Film Office and was by all counts a far more gruff character than Greenhut. He had been brought in to drag people in line and run Alan's day-to-day business in a more efficient manner. He would last just two more films with Alan. Musically, the film has Alan's usual mix of metropolitan jazz. I don't love Alan's soundtrack work in the 90s, and this isn't a highlight. Out of the seven films that Alan made for Sweetland, this is the only one not to get a soundtrack release. They didn't even bother to have that cheap cash in. If there's any sign that Alan is just using the same old musical tricks, then it's the repeated use of Sing Sing Sing, originally by Benny Goodman and his orchestra. He had used the track prominently just four years earlier in Manhattan Murder Mystery. Perhaps the lack of musical invention is forgivable, as his last film was a musical. But Deconstructing Harry isn't really a great music film. The opening credit song is one of Alan's most overtly pop music choices. It's called Twisted, and it's a jazz song sung by Annie Ross in 1952 and based on a 1949 jazz instrumental by Wardell Gray. Probably the most famous version is Joni Mitchell's, who recorded a version on her 1974 groundbreaking album, Court and Spark. Alan uses the Ross version, and it must have appealed to Alan with the use of the word analyst right there in the first line. But the song has a wonderful, scattered, fractured quality that fits in with the film. It's very rare that Alan chooses a vocal recording as an opening credits track. That twisted lyric must have spoken to Alan and Harry. Crazy ideas, but I knew what was happening, I knew I was a genius. 
Deconstructing Harry was released in the US on the 27th of August 1997. It was produced by Sweetland Films, a production company that was set up by Alan's best friend who had so far exclusively made Woody Allen films. Sweetland didn't have its own distribution and initially relied on Miramax, the super hip studio behind Pulp Fiction, Clarks and more. Miramax at the time and in the 90s was the edgy leaders of this American new wave and having Woody Allen associated with them was a real coup. So it's funny that for whatever reason, Sweetland left Miramax for Fine Line for this one film. Edgy Miramax actually missed out on one of Allen's edgiest films with the swearing and the shooting and the nudity. Instead, the studio that released Pulp Fiction got a Christmas musical. But perhaps Deconstructing Harry also missed out on Miramax's infamous awards campaigning. There was no award nominations for Deconstructing Harry at the Academy Awards. Still, the film was one of Alan's better performing releases of the 90s. I also feel like it managed to capture the imagination a bit more than others. Alan's one film a year schedule means his films often get lost, but all the big stars and the out-of-focus man and the loose ties to Alan's tabloid life meant that this film is a little bit more notorious than Alan's other work in the period. It kind of cut through the culture a little bit. There is a lot to love in Deconstructing Harry. For me, this feels like a large, sprawling double album that has a lot of great moments, but also so much going on that there's, you know, a couple of dud moments. What works best for me is when the line between fiction and reality gets smashed together. Less interesting is Harry's family stuff or the stuff with his sister. Sometimes the film is racing with excitement. Sometimes it's slow and talkative. It's all over the place and it's kind of designed to be. It's a fun film to just get lost in but I don't fall madly in love with it. It just misses out on being top tier Woody Allen for me. Top half of the middle pack for sure. But it doesn't have the emotional wallop of his best work. I don't know how much the emotional resolve works for me. That Harry learns to love his work is not something that most people can relate to, especially if I don't know if Allen feels the same way. It's hardly a universal lesson on the human condition. But in terms of inventiveness and ideas, Alan is overflowing. There's lots of memorable scenes, although not much of a story. But there's plenty of laughs though. And maybe, with a bit more work, Alan could have fleshed out the short stories into their own films. Instead, Alan throws these ideas away as just a character aspect for Harry. And it is probably Alan's most overt film about writing. The art of creating characters. How those characters make others feel how writers draw from life around them. It is as self-reflective and meta as anything Charlie Kaufman would write about writing, and it often makes lists of great films about writing. But in a way, the film is about the journey and not the message. The insight that Harry is so screwed up that he can only live in this strange middle world between his imagination and reality is nice. It's nice that he comes to the place that he needs to keep writing to work through his life. But what we remember about the film is the wild and wonderful chaos. And if you go with the chaos, it's a fun ride. It's amazing. To me, it's a, it's a really interesting character, a, a guy who, who can't function well in life, but, but can only function in art. You know, it's, it's, it's sort of sad in a way and also funny. Like, well, but your books novel. all seem a little sad on the surface, really? which is why I like deconstructing them, because underneath they're really happy. It's just that you don't know it. Oh, okay. yeah. <laughs> Here's some fun facts about deconstructing Harry. The film ends with Harry starting a new novel. The main character in that novel's name is Rifkin, 
which Alan would use again for Rifkin's Festival almost 20 years later. So I guess he sat on that name for all that time? Or perhaps, in the film, Harry is writing what would become Rifkin's Festival. Notes for a novel. Opening possibility. Rifkin led a fragmented, disjointed existence. He had long ago come to this conclusion. All people know the same truth. Our lives consist of how we choose to distort it. Only his writing was calm. His writing, which had in more ways than one, saved his life. This is the most prominent use of a dare university, a strange curiosity in the Woody Allen cinematic universe. Adair is the fictional university featured in this film, but it also mentioned in Scoop and Irrational Man. It's weird that this fictional university exists in three unconnected Woody Allen films. Or are they? Does Harry Block, the great Splendini and Abe Lucas all live in the same connected universe? Adair is named after Virginia Hamilton Adair, a poet who Allen loves, who found fame late in life in her 80s. Welcome to Adair University, you, sir. Welcome. I'm Professor Wiggins. We certainly hope you have a very pleasant experience. I wonder if Alan had Who Grant in mind when writing this. Alan was a big fan of Grant's and tried to cast him several times. He finally appeared in Alan's 2000 film Small Time Crooks, but back in 1995, he was caught with a black prostitute and was arrested. It was quite a Harry Block thing to do, and it seemed like a really obvious reference at the time. And finally, we ran some polls on the website WoodyAllenPages.com about favourite Allen films a few years back. And interestingly, Deconstructing Harry was voted Woody Allen's number one film of the 90s, according to his fans. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Woody Allen Pages podcast. It's nice to be back. What do you think of Deconstructing Harry? Has it sort of fallen away? Do you still love it? I'd love to know your thoughts. Best questions and comments will be included in the Q&A episode that we produce every season. This is the bit where I talk about supporting the podcast. Firstly, like so many other websites, there's a Patreon. I know. Look, it's the main way for me to keep the costs of the website and the podcast going. You get some digital bonuses as well if you sign up, including digital versions of my books, the Woody Allen Film Guides, which has annotated information about every Woody Allen film. I guarantee you they are the most comprehensive guide to Woody Allen you'll ever find. You can also buy the books directly, including paperback versions and posters of the podcast artwork. I'll have all those links in the description. There's also a no-cost way of supporting me too, which is simply spreading the word. Tell a friend, share the link, and hey, leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. Every bit helps. For all your Woody Allen news and information, go to WoodyAllenPages.com. You can follow me on social media everywhere with the handle at Woody Allen Pages. And yes, God forgive me, I'm even on threads. Okay, next week, I look at a film made from a script that Alan hung onto for many decades before making. Thanks for listening. Yeah, so nothing wrong with science. You know, between between. Air conditioning and the Pope, I'll take air conditioning. I'm scared. I'm really scared. I'm a-